with me. Luke chapter 9. Well, actually, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but we're finishing Luke chapter 9 today. It is a long chapter, but it's not just a long chapter. It's a very rich chapter. Each section we've gone through uh, has so much to tell us, and so we'll pick it up with our final section, Luke chapter 9. So glad you're able to join us for it. Starting in verse 51, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51, and we'll be reading 51 through 62. If you don't have a Bible, simply raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hands, and uh, you can keep it. Uh, we'd have one up here needed. Uh, if you can get, put a Bible there, and again, you're, glad, you're more than welcome to keep it. We love to give away Bibles. Jesus loves when we give away Bibles. He wants you to give away your Bible out of your heart this week, wherever you're at. So starting verse 51, Luke chapter 9, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are in my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Of God, Lord, we ask again for the work and the ministry of your spirit in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know that um, office expert, Dilbert, and he knows uh, he really is keen on how things should work at the office place. He had this quote. He has a lot of good ones, but he has this one. I don't have an attitude problem. You have a perception problem. You'll meet people that think that way. You and I are guilty of sometimes thinking that way. When we think someone else's perception problem is the issue, and that sometimes might be the case, but you know when you're dealing with Jesus, the creator of the universe, the master, there's never been anyone that's ever walked the earth that is a teacher and instructor like Jesus. His perception is never wrong of who he's assessing, of the attitudes he's assessing, of the words he's assessing, of the actions, anything that you say or I say, Jesus has not even one iota of a wrong perception. He has the right perception of what we think, what we say, how we act, what we do. You and I get it wrong. We will have a wrong perception, and we also will have wrong attitudes. Jesus is walking, he's journeying to Jerusalem, and he comes, so he's got some people he's going to interact with, and they might think, 
well, Lord, you, you don't understand where I'm coming from. The disciples were thinking, Lord, here's how we think we should handle this. But Jesus, looking at each and every one of these situations, each and every one of these individuals, he's able to identify how they should be thinking, how they should be acting, how they should be reacting, how they should be moving forward. You and I need his counsel in our lives, don't we? Because our perception is wrong often, but our attitude is wrong as well, our perceptions and our attitudes. If you're taking notes this morning, we'll be looking at the text in light of the, uh, the message title I have this morning is Faithfully Following Jesus. Faithfully Following Jesus. That's what we want to do. I hope that's what we all want to do. Uh, but sometimes our attitudes are in the wrong place. And not always because our attitudes are in the wrong place just because we are being uh, purposefully resistant. Sometimes they're in the wrong place just because we don't know how we should be acting. We haven't been taught things. Uh, again, the younger you are, there's some things that Kids don't know until someone teaches them. So sometimes the attitude is misplaced because we simply don't know how we should be thinking, how we should be reacting, what it is that we should be looking at. And Jesus is there to instruct, isn't he? He's there to faithfully instruct his disciples. But everywhere he goes, he's instructing everyone else along the way, showing them exactly what the Father would have them to know. We'll look at three things from the text this morning if you're taking notes again. Learning loving and leaving. Learning, loving, and leaning. Or leaving, not leaning. You should be leaning on the left arrows, but it's leaving. First, we look at this, um, this first point, learning. Jesus comes, uh, he, it says in verse 51, uh, the time had come for him to be received up. Now, if you go back uh, also in the ninth chapter here, we know that uh, uh, in verse 31, back in verse 31, same chapter, uh, you don't have to turn there, but if your Bibles are, well, you're up in the ninth chapter, you can probably see it pretty easily. Uh, it says that Jesus, who appeared in glory, spoke of his decease, decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So remember back on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is met there, coming down from heaven comes Elijah and Moses. And they minister to Jesus because Jesus, from that point forward, at the Mount of Transfiguration, now certainly he was set for the cross from the day he was born, all the way back to Bethlehem. But from that Mount of Transfiguration, when he actually unveiled his glory to Peter, James, and John, from that point forward, he was like set like a flint. Uh, the clock was set. The fourth quarter had begun. Uh, the two-minute warning, whatever it was, he was headed for the cross. And he would mention it several times after that. And remember, if you've been with us previous studies, how did they get that? <sighs> right over the head. And if they didn't understand it, they didn't ask about it either because they, it was kind of heavy and they didn't really want to know. And we've all been guilty of that too, right? Things that are heavy, we just don't want, oh, I'd rather not know. And so the Lord was set for Jerusalem. So that's why it, uh, Luke is recording for us here. Uh, the time had come for him to be received up. He would go back up to the Father, but that wasn't going to happen immediately. But that was his focus. That was his mind's eye, focused on getting to Jerusalem, his face steadfast, 
headed to Jerusalem, verse 52, and he sent messengers before his face. They didn't receive him. Let's look first at his face. Three things, or two things looking at here in this learning, his face and his focus. Um, this is actually the fourth time in the ninth chapter that Jesus' face is mentioned. The exact words that Luke uses is his face. Four times uh, it's mentioned his face. The first time was back on the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened to his face at the Mount of Transfiguration? It glowed. His face began to shine like the sun. But here, his face is mentioned three times as he's headed towards this little Samaritan town. His face is mentioned three times as being set, being focused, looking forward. And so we know that when his face was shining, he's revealing the future glory that his face, as I just read uh, prior to the message, uh, that his face, in fact, himself, he will light up all of heaven, that glorious face. But right now, this face is set for the cross. It's focused completely on the cross. This face, it would be beaten when he gets to Jerusalem. The face would not be glowing. It would be beaten. It would be spit upon. It would be marred beyond recognition. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke mentions his face three times set for Jerusalem because his face would endure pummeling, blindfolded and beaten. All of these things would happen. It would be his face that people would look upon, his face that they would see the expression, his face that they would see. The Roman centurion would sometime later say, truly this was the Son of God as he looked upon the face of Jesus, his face, his face set. But it was his focus that was behind the setting of his face. His focus was clear. It says it was steadfastly set, steadfastly set. When you steadfastly set your mind on something, Many times we're guilty of not steadfastly setting our mind on anything, right? This is an example of not steadfastly set. Hey, you going to be there tomorrow? I might. If you've heard me before, that means you're not, right? Whenever I hear that, my first assumption is I'll see you next week. Yeah, we might show up. It's, that's not steadfastly set. That's the difference between saying, hey, we'll see you tomorrow. Yes, you will, bright and early. Steadfast, set, guaranteed, well, to the best of our ability, because we can't really guarantee anything, can we? We have no idea if the car is going to start tomorrow. We think it's going to. Mine, a couple of weeks ago, the alternator went out at the night of harvest. Thanks for the guys that jumped my car. I had every intention of going home that night. I was set steadfastly to go home that night, but it wasn't going to happen unless somebody helped me out. But once it started, guess where I went? I went home. That was my intention. It was set. I actually wanted to sleep in my own bed that night, even as nice as this parking lot is. I wanted to be in my own bed. Steadfastly set. But when we set our mind on things, we set our heart on something that 
really we know there's going to be some reward at the end of it, of the effort. You see an athlete, Paul talks about this, the athlete that competes. And you set, you know, uh, the guys that might be training uh, for some athletic endeavor. Uh, and you've, you've seen the no pain, no gain, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and, but it's true, all the effort, all the hours, it provided they don't pull a hamstring or blow out an ACL right, or have any uh, ankle injury or something, provided God's grace covers all that stuff, when you reach the victory podium, you know, they all say the same thing. It was so worth it. All the effort. This is what I've trained for. This is what I've poured in since I was five or seven or ten or whatever else it is. And by the way, uh, my wife gets a kick. We watch it when I watch interviews. Have you ever seen... uh, an interview where you almost not hear the exact same cliches a million times. I worked so hard for this. I can't believe you know, all that went into this. I mean, cliche after cliche, but the effort, the focus on it was all the same. Setting our eyes that we're going to continue to pursue something until we get there. And Jesus, he wasn't pursuing the glory of man, he was set, his mind was set, his focus was set, his heart was set on going to the cross to redeem man. It wasn't something of self-interest. It was the interest of others. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that all run in a race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Keep your eyes on that prize. Remember, life is short. It is but a vapor. You'll blink and you'll be 90 if you get to live that long. Most people won't. But you'll blink and you'll be 50 or 60. And we have to continue. People put so much effort. They put so much effort on things that they really can't guarantee. I want to retire independently wealthy. I want to go do this trip. I want to go do that. And they really work hard for those things. But Jesus had a, a parable about that. You know, one man that that had, had planned on all that, and, and then he had, was ready to enjoy it, and Jesus said, You're fool, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. You had your eyes on the wrong thing. You, you had your eyes on the wrong thing. You're not even going to be able to see that. The Lord wants us looking, pressing towards that which really matters. Jesus, he was focused on the cross. He wasn't focused on uh, the glory of man like Herod was. He wasn't focused on all the things that Pontius Pilate wanted. That's why Pontius Pilate couldn't say no to the people because he wanted the praise of men. He wanted the glory of men. Jesus was focused on going to the cross. Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. You can work for hours and hours to find success in this world, but A, it won't even satisfy, and B, you won't be able to hold on to it when you get it. And Jesus said, why don't you put all your emphasis on that prize of the upward call? The upward call. But we also have to have Jesus' focus. We have to be able to remove all the distractions. The enemy wants us focused on a million different things, doesn't he? You ever feel like you've got too many balls in the air? We all feel that way at times. Throw in another one. Throw in the chainsaw too while you're at it. You ever seen that guy? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing when they do that stuff. Kind of crazy, but anyway. D.L. Moody said, give me a man who says this one thing I do and not those 50 things I dabble in. 
We dabble in too many things. Jesus says, reduce your priority list. Reduce it down. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all that other 50 things will be added unto you in right order. We try and balance them all. And the Lord says, you're not, and, and you know, I've, I've mentioned this before, 2% of Americans have ever been invited to church. I mean, 2% of Christians, have, I'm sorry, 2% of Christians have invited someone to church. Our priorities are upside down, aren't they? That's not with our eyes on the things that Jesus, he was focused on the cross. He was focused on hearts. He was focused on souls. He was focused on lives. We need to be focused on the things that matter to the Lord, and then we won't have too many balls near. Now, if the other things still matter, Jesus knows you need clothing. He knows you need something to eat. He knows you need tires that actually are inflated and all that kind of good stuff. But he'll add those things. We won't be swimming and concerns of all those things. And we won't be dabbling in everything. We won't kind of know what our calling is and what we should be doing. I don't know where I should be serving, so I'm still trying to figure it out. How old are you now? I'm 78. <laughs> he wants us to know what to focus on. The writer of Hebrews, he understood this fixed position of Jesus' focus. And he calls us to mirror and do the same because Jesus had that singular focus. By the way, singular focus doesn't mean... And we see this in the life of Jesus all the time. If Jesus is focused on the cross, you might make the wrong assumption that because he's focused on the cross, he would never have time for anybody on the way to the cross. Quite the opposite. Isn't that interesting? People whose minds are focused on the Lord are the most helpful to everyone around them. Why? Because they're in tune with the heart of God. They actually can be disrupted in their day, help someone, and still get more done than the other person. That's called God's math, the way he works. He actually, you know, he owns that 24-hour day and all those minutes, and the person that tries to say, I'll get everything done, and what I have left I'll give to God will never have any time left to give to God. But the person says, I give it first to God, will have time for all those other things. Seek ye first, seek ye first, seek ye first. The other things will be added. But Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus. This is where our fix set is. Our eyes are fixed on him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' eyes were set on the cross. Now, you and I aren't called to go to the cross, although we're called to be, we're supposed to die with the Lord, at least our heart, right, our own life, our own desires, but we now fix our eyes on him. He was fixed on the cross to actually provide salvation for us. We've received the salvation. Now he says, keep your eyes on me, and then I'll tell you when to take a right turn or a left turn. I want you to serve in children's ministry. I want you to go do this over here. I want you to help this person. I want you to send an email to over here. You know, I, it's funny. In, in the little things, God, he still will iron out too. For five years in a row, I've said to my wife, when we lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, we lived in Charlotte, North Carolina from 1997 to 2002. And when we lived there, we used to love to go up to this little town in, uh, in the mountains there called Blowing Rock. I don't know if anyone's ever been there, but it's a neat little town, Blowing Rock. And then just up the Blue Ridge is uh, Grandfather Mountain, and you can go hiking and all that stuff. We used to love to go there before we had kids. And then even when we had our first daughter, uh, we, we went up there, I think, two or three times with her. 
I carry in the papoose, you know, that thing that uh, you carry on your back. I looked really rugged doing that. Um, so, uh, you know, we go hiking and hang out in a little town, and it's got all this neat little shops and everything. And uh, we, we really enjoyed going there, but only one of my daughters ever went, and she was less than two. And then we moved to Richmond. I took a job transfer, ended up in Richmond. And for the last five years, we've said, man, we'd love to go there in the fall because it's really pretty, and, I, and we just can't get down there. And I could never justify either the time or the gas money, or anything else to get down there. I just, fall is, is, is a busy season if you're in the ministry, and I couldn't, I couldn't get down there. And uh, then I found out a few weeks ago that my wife's great aunt, her health was failing, and, and she had requested that I uh, officiate the funeral. And I said, well, that's great. I said, if, if the Lord wills, if she passes and the funeral's on a weekend, we'll try and go there and just for three or four hours, we'll take the girls there. And the Lord did exactly that. Something that wasn't that, it's not that important if I ever get there ever again. But the main thing is God says, oh, by the way, you can swing by there on the way to do my business. And we did. We were there for three or four hours on Friday and then visited with family. I got to take the girls there. And then we went on to the funeral. And so in ministry, for you and I, all of us, when we set our eyes on ministry first, God will actually say, take care of some of the things. Uh, oh, by the way, you'll actually get, uh, oh, you know, so-and-so invited us, and they're paying for our lunch. Isn't that great? Just little things that God will do along the way. He cares about those things as well. But our focus must be fixed on the kingdom of God, fixed on Jesus Christ. Uh, let's look at the next point here, if you're taking notes. Loving. Well, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And they passed through, if you've, been, if you've looked on your map in the Bible, uh, you know you have Galilee up in the north, and then you have Samaria, and then you have Judah at the bottom, where Jerusalem is, Bethlehem, of course, down in, down in Judah. Well, Jesus is coming from Galilee, and many of the Jewish, um, many, of the, many of those that were Jews, they didn't like to go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria. Samaria's, Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile. So the people that were all Jewish looked down their nose at them. You guys aren't the real deal. You're half-breed. You're half-mixed. You're not, you're not pure Jewish. Well, the Samaritans, they didn't like the Jewish people either. Who are you to think you're better than us? Does anyone like to be told that they're better than someone? Does anyone like someone tell you, I'm better than you? No. Both sides were wrong, by the way. The Samaritans and the Jews, both sides, by the way, that's the way it is around the world. Whenever there's constant conflict, cultural, ethnic, racial, both sides are usually almost always wrong. Because, remember we talked about wrong perception at the beginning? Only Jesus has the right perception. We have the wrong perception, wrong attitudes, but the Samaritans, they didn't like the Jewish people and the Jewish people, they didn't like the Samaritans, even though the Samaritans actually counted people like Jacob as their father and ancestor too. So they were in conflict. And many of them didn't like to even go through Samaria. But Jesus, he never avoided conflict. He went straight through it, didn't he? Because he knew how to handle it. And he sent his disciples on, and when he goes to this one Samaritan village, He's requesting that they make room for him to lodge there, to stay there 
We don't know how long. Could have been a night. Could have been a few days or whatever. But nevertheless, when they ask, where is he headed? And the disciples say, well, he's headed to Jerusalem. What only a part of him. He's headed to Jerusalem. Tell him to hit the road. Find another place to stay. Find another place to go. We don't, we don't want a part of him. Because we don't like those that are headed to Jerusalem that have a love for the Jewish people. We're in conflict. So they don't receive him. By the way, there will be people that don't receive you and me. It'll be their own perceptions. It'll be their own issues. It'll be their current rejection of Christ. Jesus said it's not you that they reject, it's who? Me that they reject. Jesus dealt with rejection all the time. We have to learn to deal with it too and understand that we're not going to be received everywhere we go. Even though our intentions are many times good, right, and hopefully righteous, doesn't mean that we're received everywhere we go. But Jesus is not received. So John and James, they don't like this response. James and John, once they recognize that uh, Jesus is not being received and welcomed, they believe he is the king of kings, they believe he's the king of the Jews, and they believe he will be king and ruler over the earth. So they have a pretty good idea here. They say, Lord, would you like us to call down fire and consume them all? You can imagine Jesus' face looking at them like, what did you just say? Lord, we've thought about this. Would you like us to call down fire just like Elijah? He was really cool. Could we do the same thing? We'd like to just consume them all. Barbecue the Samaritans. Now, Jesus gave these two guys the nickname Sons of Thunder. Do you know why? Can you see why? They were given the nickname Sons of Thunder. Jesus gave them the nickname. It wasn't their nickname. He gave it to them. Maybe God does have a sense of humor. Because he gave it to them very early on when he called them. He already knew their disposition. Some of you, before Christ, were real sons of thunder. Right? You were Friday and Saturday night problems. Many of you. I don't know about many of you. Some of you. I had those days, and I had friends like that. Passionate, but about passionate based on the wrong perception and the wrong attitude, right? Jesus, you've come to this world to set up your kingdom, and these guys aren't receiving you, so let's nuke them. They didn't even have the power to nuke them. I guess they were saying, here's the deal, what they were saying. We'll call it, and you back us up by sending it. <laughs> like, you know, acting... This is my six foot eight, 350 pound bodyguard behind me, right? I can't do it, but he can. So we'll call it out, and at the count of three, you drop the fire. <laughs> so they're living up to their nickname. By the way, that's in Mark chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, if you need to see where Jesus nicknamed this. But they are living up to their name. They want to call thunder and lightning out of the sky. And if you're taking notes, three things I want to just point out about their response. Now, Jesus, we want to learn here about his forgiveness. He wants to teach them about his forgiveness.
but they're not getting that at the moment here. They have the wrong attitude. They don't see the situation the way Jesus sees it. They have three issues that we'll look at. First, they are misguided. They are misguided. Sometimes you and I are misguided too. By the way, they're not rebellious here. There's a difference. Parents, you know when your kids are being rebellious versus just misguided, right? There is a difference. They're not being rebellious here, but they are misguided. And misguided people need to be redirected, don't they? They're not being rebellious. They think they have come up with a really good idea. That's scary sometimes if your kids, you know, think that, uh, I found a bunch of things in the cabinets, I put them all in a bowl. What were they? And I want you to eat it. You need to know, are you misguided? They're off course. They think, they think that Jesus is going to be well pleased with this response. Lord, they're, they're not receiving you, let's destroy them. They're off course. Back before I had neck surgery and I played a little golf, I was never good at it, but I did like to play. Um, there was a, I had a guy that, I'd never heard it, but apparently uh, it said sometimes in the course, you know when you hit a ball and you hit it really hard and long, but it's nowhere on the green, it's actually not on the fairway. It's like eight miles to the right in the woods. That's called right postage, wrong address, Right? You've got enough distance. It's 250 yards, but it's on the 8th fairway, and you're actually on the 18th. It's way over here. And this is Jesus speaking to them. You guys, I know you have the right intentions. You, you mean to hit it straight. You mean that this is going to be something you think that I want you to do, but it's not. This isn't my heart. This isn't what I want you to do. This isn't the way I want you to react. I'm going to take your your thinking, and course correct it. So they're misguided, but they need the right direction. You know Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is why we have to be in the word of God, folks. Not just on Sunday morning. You need to be in the word of God because God will correct and fix your thinking on a regular basis. Amen? We have cloudy thinking, bad vision. We think we understand something. The Lord says, you don't understand this at all, but I'm going to help you. And it's in your morning devotion, and you see something, and it just kind of shakes you up and say, wow, I didn't even think of that. Maybe that's what they're going through. Maybe that's what I'm misunderstanding. Jesus tells us in Proverbs 3, don't trust in your own understanding, Right? Trust in the Lord, not in your own understanding. I can't trust in my own understanding. It doesn't matter how many things that I've figured out in life. I still need God's wisdom for every situation. Lord, what? rather than say, Lord, do you want us to call down a fire from heaven? Say, Lord, you still, they, they were right in asking a question, but they had already formed the direction. Say, Lord, what would you want us to do here? See the difference? Lord, we think we've got the best idea. All we need is you a rubber stamp it, done it, do it, done. Don't look for rubber stamps. Just ask for the Lord's direction. But they're misguided. But then they're corrected. They're corrected by the Lord. He says um, back to them, you do not know what spirit you are of. He rebukes them. You don't know what manner of spirit you're of. They don't know what they've been called to. 
See, Jesus, did, Jesus came not to condemn the world, John chapter 3, but that the world through him might be saved. You and I, the spirit that God wants in us is a spirit of reconciliation. We are to be, according to the New Testament, ministers of reconciliation. There is a judge and an arbiter. There is the one that actually will judge people for every single thing they've ever thought and done. But guess who that belongs to? The Lord. You and I are simply to be ministers of reconciliation. Well, who should I do that with? Anyone that's still alive. That's it. If they're still breathing, you still have an opportunity to be a minister of reconciliation. Jesus says, this is the spirit that you've now been called to. Before Christ, James and John, they were ministers of get it done. Right? They were ministers of take care of it and make sure that the problem goes away. If that meant that the problem was two people, these two very passionate men would go take out the opposition. Jesus says, I want you to bring an olive branch to the opposition. See the difference? They were misguided, but he corrects them, and then he instructs them. They're misguided, they're corrected, and then they're instructed. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't say, I'm done with you two because you have no clue what you're talking about. Nice having you. No, he tells them, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now he's instructing them. You guys are going to be lifesavers, just like me. Jesus is a lifesaver. Now, Jesus actually is the lifesaver, but we, for the rest of our lives, will be tossing the lifesaver. He is the lifesaver, but we'll be continuing to extend it. That's why I came. You guys aren't here to destroy Samaria. Someday Jesus will destroy Samaria. Someday Jesus will destroy Tokyo, New York City, Mexico City. Do you know, if you've read the book of Revelation, someday he's going to destroy the world. That is his, when his second coming, he comes back not as the suffering lamb, but as the roaring lion. But that's his job, never ours. Amen? He says, for you, you are going to follow my footstep in ministry, you're going to be handling people with love, handling people with mercy, handling people with grace. They don't know. You know, the Lord told Jonah, remember Jonah wanted to smoke, he wanted God to smoke Nineveh. And Nineveh was wicked and violent and barbaric and immoral. And Jonah said, that city does not deserve forgiveness. And God says, how should I not have compassion or have pity on a group of people who don't know their right hand from their left hand? This is the way God sees the unsaved world, as not knowing their right hand from their left hand. And if they don't know their right hand from the left hand, and you are given the opportunity to show them their right hand from the left hand, some people actually will listen. Proof of that is all of you that are here saved. God gave me way too much mercy before I came to Christ at the age of 26. How about you? Because I look back and I would have been like the Samaritans at age 23, 22, 25, 18. Uh, James and John would have had to call fire on me a lot of times. But he says, I didn't come to destroy, I came to save. And the Lord desires that we, he says uh, in Matthew 9, 13, but go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. By the way, James and John, they would someday really get this. James would be the first to martyr and give up his life for Christ. John would end up being called the apostle of love. How about that? John started calling love down on people later in life. At first, he wanted to call fire. James would give up his life. John would be the apostle of love. What God was teaching them, they eventually became really accomplished students. Let's look at this um, last section, leaving, if you're taking notes. Verses 57 through 62, Jesus encounters different people who express a desire to follow him. And I think many people, a lot of times, do have a desire to follow Jesus, but will they have the same desire when Jesus gives the terms? All right, here's the deal. I do want you to follow me, but it isn't going to be it isn't going to be a bed of roses. It's not going to be easy. Um, so Jesus, let me get this straight. If I follow you, I'll get how many promotions in the next 10 years? How much more money will I be getting? What are the benefits? Can I, can I get, tell me the benefits package. He says, uh, well, heaven. No, 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 I mean here on earth. I, 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 heaven's great. I know that's forever. I want to know what I got for the next 40 years. That's what I'm concerned with. That whole eternity forever stuff, that's a really long time. I want to know what's in the the bennies for the next 40 years. What's that look like? And he's like, well, it's different for each person, but for some of you, it might mean that you are going to die a very young death, like John the Baptist, right? Right? That doesn't sound like a benefits package I'm interested in. Well, but John the Baptist, you know, he's going to have a mansion in heaven. He's going to live with me for all eternity. And all. Yeah, but that's, that's not worth it. I want to know what is in it for me here and now. That's the question that many people ask. If you're taking notes under uh, leaving, let's look at his followers. His followers, which is to be us. It happened, uh, the, f- the first situation here, Uh, someone says to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus explains, okay, you want to follow me wherever I go? Uh, You do realize that foxes have dens or holes, birds have nests, but I've come into this world and I've forsaken having any of those things. Jesus said, I don't own anything. Are you okay with that? Um, uh, Did I say I'd follow you wherever you go? First thing under his followers is to know the cost. To know the cost. 100% of our life belongs to Jesus. It's one thing to know that intellectually. It's a different thing to know that at the heart level. 100%. Do you believe that? That everything you have belongs to the Lord. Andrew Murray said it's not about what a man... Uh, or I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, he said something to the effect of, "It's not man looks at what a man man looks at what a man owns. God looks at how does he use it. If everything you have belongs to God, you'll use it in a different way. 
because you realize it all belongs to him anyway. And you're not near as concerned if something got damaged or messed up in giving it to, you know, I was, you know, man, I, I, I go and do a good thing. I use my truck for the Lord and someone got a scratch on it. That's it. I'm never using the truck for the Lord ever again. God says, really? What if I just take the whole thing? What if I decide to just have it crumpled with a dump truck doesn't see and backs into it while you're inside of Kroger? It all belongs to him. Jesus said, I don't have a home. I don't have anything here on this earth. He could. He could have owned it all. But he chose to say none of those things really matter. And the cost that Jesus wants us to understand is that he owns us, but we own nothing. If you're going to follow me, he says, you don't own anything anymore. It all belongs to me. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. I belong to God. The house belongs to God. The stuff belongs. What if he takes it all away? Some of our brothers and sisters in Iraq... In Syria, do you realize that they don't have homes now? Should they give up their relationship with Christ? Or would they be holding on to the only thing that's really left? Which is it? Well, could that ever happen here? You better believe it could happen here. I just saw recently this week, uh, um, actually Ray Comfort put it on his blog, um, a study recently came out from a group of seismologists in Southern California. I know that people have talked about earthquakes in California. You ever hear the big one's coming? They talk about it all the time. Actually, the one they're talking about is not even the big one. A group of seismologists recently had a report that said they believe a strong, powerful earthquake is imminent for the Southern California area. Imminent. And they believe that the computer models show 1,800 people dead, which isn't even close to what Sendai saw with the, uh, with the tsunami in Japan, and water outages of up to six full months. That would actually, if, if something, that, God forbid, I don't want to see those things happen. By the way, those things will all happen in the tribulation period in the book of Revelation, and far more, every island will be moved out of its place. Talk about an earthquake, right? But these things will take place, and they do take place, and when you lose everything, Jesus is trying to tell you in advance, if you're holding on to it really tight, you'll be an absolute mess. But if you're not holding on to it so tight, you'll recognize that you never owned it in the first place. Everything I have, I'm on loan or rent with God. Right? It's not real ownership. I will pass it on. Jesus said, I don't have anything. And you've got to hold on to things that you don't have them either. Paul said in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of my Christ of uh, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. Paul said, look, I could have had a lot of things, but I gave them all up. You think Paul's regretting that today in heaven? Of course not. Not at all. We have to know the call. It's cost. We have to know the call. Look at the next situation. Uh, he says to another, follow me. Jesus tells this one. Jesus does the bidding. He says to a man, follow me, or um, an individual. Uh, but he says back, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now his father, this is not uh, from the inference, his father's not in a deathbed situation here. This is, let me go home 
and however long it takes till my parents pass on, then I'll come back. I'll try and catch up with you down the road. Could be 15 years, Lord, could be 20. I'll try and catch up with you down the road. This is the old proverbial, I'll really serve Jesus a lot somewhere out there. Somewhere down the road. I, I'm going to do it. I just got to finish about 25 worth, years worth of things first. And then when I'm done with those things that I have prioritized, Lord, then I'll come track you down wherever you may be. And I'll, and I'll be ready to get, get to work. Would anyone hire an employee like this? Right? We'd like to hire you. Great. Where do I sign? Send my paychecks to the following address. You'll see me in about 20 years. What? Yeah, I, I, I'm fully on board. I love your company. I think you've made me a great offer. Uh, you can send all my paychecks for the next 20 years. I'll see you in about 20 years. I've got a few things to take care of. But I fully anticipate, and I want to make sure the 401k is filled up when I get there. All right? Sound good? The Lord says, no. My followers follow me now. Let, he says, Jesus actually says, let the dead go bury the dead. Obviously, he's speaking to the spiritually dead. That those that are dead without Christ, let them worry about the things that will fade away. Don't have the world's system mindset. The world's system says, you must do this at this age, this at this age, this at this age, this at this age, this at this age. You spend this much money on this, this, this is how you do it. Follow our recipe to the letter and you'll be happy. The Lord says, no. The dead, they, they're following dead things. They're following things that are going to fade away, the things that are going to crumble. And by the way, family, he mentions uh, his, his family here. Family can be a real hindrance, um, especially with the ministry. Your family will not always agree that, hey, I can't make it to such and so function because I promised that I would actually be serving uh, the Lord in such and so capacity. I, I was going to be part of the church outreach. I can't make it to the family. What do you mean you can't make it? You know, no one ever misses this. And by the way, our faith in Christ gets a different standard almost anything. You almost never hear someone say that to someone who's choosing a life. If you're a soldier for Christ versus a soldier for the U.S. Army, if you're a soldier for the U.S. Army, your family will be very understanding of all kinds of things. I can't do that. Uncle Sam says I have to be in South Korea. And everyone say, that's really noble. Say, I can't do that. I promise to be part of an evangelism outreach. What? Who's in charge over there? Uh, his name is Jesus Christ. He's not a four-star general. He has no bearing on your life. You do what you want. You see the difference? Family, the family of God, is actually on a higher precedent than our blood family. But we've got it all mixed up. Jesus says, look, I'm your heavenly father, and if I give you instructions, you need to do them. What if your earthly father is unsaved and says, I don't want you to do that? We've had, we've had people, young people from our church, that have gone on the mission field. They didn't want to leave their family, but they knew that God was calling them. And we must obey God, not man. Even, even, our, even though God wants us to love our family, I told you I was blessed to go preach a funeral to family. But there's also things, uh, earlier in the year for the first time, I couldn't make the family reunion back in May. 
I had to be here in Richmond. First one I missed. Because some things are more important. Things I have to do for God's family outweigh things I have to do for blood family. So Jesus said, you've got to understand, when you're adopted into my family, my family is your family. You'll still love the other family, but you'll not be able to do what they always want you to do because they have a different master, right? So he said, let the dead bury the dead. If they don't know the Lord, they don't have this relationship with God, so they don't understand why you prioritize these things. Even in heaven, we're not even going to be married. I know that even that sometimes bums me out too. I know, you know, but I know it, it bums me out from my own flesh perspective. If I saw it from God's perspective, it wouldn't be an issue at all. But even in heaven, we're not going to have the marriage relationships. We're all going to be married to who? Jesus. All those family things change when we're in the family of God. We're told to obey our earthly fathers, yes, but we're now sent out by our heavenly father to reach an unsaved world. And that's what Jesus says. The call here is, I want you to go preach the kingdom of God. I want you to bring dead people into life with the life-changing message of the gospel. It's not helping anybody if you and I sit for hours on end with a remote control, right? God says, you got to go out. And the last thing is, know the commitment. Last verse here. I'll follow you. Let me first bid farewell to those who are in my house. Again, this is a family connection here. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't do it yet, Lord. I've got relationships that kind of hinder me from help, uh, going and doing these things. And Jesus said, no one having put his hand in the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That singleness of focus, looking forward. We can't be looking back. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we're looking back, remember in the Old Testament, what happened to Lot's wife? She goes out of, they go out of, fire and brimstone is raining down on Sodom. What does Lot's wife do? I wish I was there. God, she turns into a pillar of salt on the spot. There's nothing worth looking back, Paul's saying. <laughs> the, the enemy tries to act like, um, I only went to Las Vegas one time. I'll close with this. This is a great example. Anyone ever been to Las Vegas? It looks way better from the air <laughs> than it does when you actually get ground level. You look at it longingly from it. It's, it's lit up. It's beautiful. It's got like a fake Eiffel Tower on this end, and it's got all these, you know, the, the Bellagio and fountains going everywhere. And back when I was still in the business world, I had to go to a, a business meeting convention thing there, and uh, it looked so pretty from the sky. Then when I got down on ground level, ugh. Oh, the, the smut that they were hassing out on the street that you're, you finally, you know, you, you want to just take it all and just throw it in the trash can. And, I mean, uh, you know, you smell alcohol and everything. New Orleans is the same way. If you ever get ground level at New Orleans, it looks so pretty in the pictures. And Lot's wife is looking back, and Jesus is saying, there's nothing worth looking back for, folks. Jesus is saying, look forward to the kingdom of God. Why are you looking back there? Why would you want what's going to be destroyed. 
what is already defiled, what is already wasting away to begin with. And those things look good from a distance, but they're not good for us. And in no way can they save us. Amen? Only looking forward to Jesus, faithfully following him as he has commanded us to. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you never lead us astray, but you lead your sheep wisely and safely. And Lord, you lead us away from poisonous, bitter water to sweet, everlasting, eternal water. And Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us here to purpose in our heart to be committed to following you. To not even be bitter and angry at the world around us, but Lord, to call your love upon them in prayer. To reach out with the olive branch of the gospel. Lord, to settle it in our hearts that we're not looking back on the things of this world. That we're not trying to hold on to things that you've told us to release. That we've been bought with a price and we're no longer our own. And before the worship team plays, I'd just like to take about 30 seconds And in the quietness of your own heart, if the Lord's spoken clearly to you, that you just recommit your own self and say, Lord, I recommit to be a faithful follower. Help me to do it. Help me to faithfully follow you. Help me to disregard all the distractions. Help me to disregard my own fleshly desires and self-wants. And Lord, I just pray that you consume my desires you give me your heart